This podcast is a presentation of UCTV.TV, University of California Television. Like what you learn? Help others discover UCTV podcasts by leaving a comment or rating in iTunes. Good evening, everyone. It's an absolute pleasure to be here and to speak to you. And a lot is happening in the area of medicines, for type, particularly for type 2 diabetes. Um, and, you know, we used to call these oral agents or oral medicines, but we now have non-insulin medicines that are injectable. And so that's kind of why I use that term here, non-insulin injectables, because my, my colleague will be speaking after me about insulin, so I'm not going to be talking about that. That's a whole other presentation. Uh, I have nothing to disclose. So uh, what I hope to cover in our half an hour together or so is I'll describe as I'm going our general treatment approaches for uh, glycemic control uh, for people with type 2 diabetes. So I will not be covering how we manage high blood pressure or cholesterol problems. I'm going to really be focusing on the medicines to help lower blood sugar. We'll talk about all the different types of medications that are used. I'm As a pharmacist, I'm a big uh, advocate on knowing how a medication works in the body. So I do, you'll see me focus quite a bit on that. And really, it, it's important, especially for medicines with type 2 diabetes, to understand how to make rational combinations of medicines. Uh, looking at warnings, precautions, different side effect profiles, and I'll touch on just some dosing principles for each of these in terms of how we use them. And the last bullet here is really an important one because we have so many options now. So it's not a, a, you know, a one-stop shop in terms of how we use the medicines. And our approach is really to tailor a person's medication regimen to you as the individual. Because as individuals, you'll have unique issues that we need to address in terms of helping develop the best medicine regimen for you. So until 2000, um, well, actually, until 1994, we had um, two classes of medicines, insulin and sulfonylureas. And then in December of 94, our next class came available called the biguanides, and we have one of those that we use here, and that's metformin. Uh, then in the, in the 1990s, we had a class called alpha-glucosidase inhibitors, uh, meglitinides or glidides for short, and then thiazolidinedione. So you'll see us call these TZDs. And then since 2005 is really where we've seen an explosion, in my opinion, of options for medicines for type 2 diabetes. And I'm not going to be going over all of them. The bolded ones that I have here, the glucagon-like peptide receptor agonists, or GLP-1 RAs, the dipeptidyl peptidase 4 inhibitors, or DPP-4 inhibitors, that's a lot easier to say. And then the last one in bold here, the sodium glucose co-transporter 2 inhibitors, or SGLT2 inhibitors. Those are the three that we are, I'm going to spend a bit of time on because they are the newer ones. And if you are unlike me where I speed up on my recorded TV now, uh, these are where the commercials all are about. And then, uh, finally, I'll touch on combinations. 
because you may or may know friends or yourself in the audience here who people are on two different medicines for diabetes, three different medicines, four different medicines. So how can we make combinations um, that are rational and that will be effective? So to build on a little bit of what I believe Dr. Masharani covered with you last Wednesday is looking at what are the kind of reasons for high blood sugar or hyperglycemia in type 2 diabetes. And so if we start here in the middle top, that's supposed to be a pancreas, and that, as you learned last week, is the organ uh, that makes insulin in the, in the beta cells. And so we see in type 2 diabetes that the pancreas has what we call a relative lack of insulin uh, uh, function, uh, secretion function. It's still making insulin, but it's not enough, and that's why the blood sugar can become elevated. I'll focus here down on the left here, which is a liver. And in the, the, your liver, I think of the liver as sort of the storehouse of sugar. So your liver stores sugar when it's needed, like when you haven't eaten overnight. Your liver is releasing glucose so that you still have a source of fuel. Um, and the liver could also make glucose. And in people with type 2 diabetes, the liver is making too much glucose and putting too much glucose into your bloodstream, leading to high blood sugar. Then in the periphery, this is muscle tissue fat cells here, your bodies can be less sensitive to insulin, what we call insulin resistance. And we have medicines that can help address that. And then on the left here is the gut. And we have certain gut hormones that have caused sort of metabolic responses in the body to help control your blood sugar. And then the last area that we'll touch on, that's a brain. And so we have some central effects, mediated effects that can control metabolic pathways, and we have some medications that can affect that. So that's sort of the framework of thinking about then, well, how can we develop um, drugs that can target these areas to help lower a person's blood sugar? And everything I'll be talking about really comes from our clinical practice guideline that the American Diabetes Association puts out. There are other uh, national uh, endocrine uh, societies, but this is really the one that I think most providers follow. And every January, this comes out. I always get kind of excited in December. It actually comes out in December ahead of, pub, ahead of print. And I go, oh, when will the next diabetes standards come out? What will be new? Um, so everything I'm talking about, you can find that as well. And it's free to take a look at. So what I'm going to be trying to simplify for you this evening is this algorithm, <laughs> okay? This is the algorithm that they put out of, of how to use these medicines. So I'm not going to, you should not read this, um, but I'm going to try and make this, have this make sense for you. So I'm gonna, this is Lisa Kroon's simplification of the ADA treatment algorithm. So here is kind of in a nutshell the framework that I would put forward here in terms of considering medications. So a big change in the algorithm in our treatment approach is looking at conditions you might have um, uh, already and how that might change what medication we would uh, feel appropriate to start or select for you. For you. And the three key area conditions are if you have uh, what's called atherosclerotic cardiovascular disease, or ASCVD in short, 
and this is if you have any type of heart disease, if you've had a heart attack, for example, peripheral arterial disease, so issues with the arteries in your legs, um, cerebral vascular disease, so issues with your arteries in your brain, if you've had a, st- a, a ischemic stroke, for example. So that's one group, <clears throat> heart failure. So if your heart's not pumping as well anymore for many purposes, but perhaps or con- reasons, perhaps hypertension, and then chronic kidney disease. And so there are medications now that have been shown in people who have these conditions already to help prevent them from occurring again or from worsening. So what we call secondary prevention. And that's where a lot of our current studies are coming out with the type 2 diabetes medications are in what we call cardiovascular outcomes trials. Um, and so this is a, there's a lot happening in this area. So how can these medications in it, separate, perhaps separate, from their glucose-lowering ability, help prevent further heart problems, cardiovascular problems, help slowing kidney disease progression, or worsening of heart failure. So that's sort of our first kind of cut at it. The next thing would be to look at what's your A1C goal. And I believe Dr. Mascherani probably covered this, but I'll touch on it too. So the A1C uh, reflects your average blood sugar over the past two to three months. And so you may be checking your finger sticks or maybe have a continuous glucose monitor on. Um, But the other really uh, uh, test that we follow in looking at sugar control is A1C. Um, And so what is your goal? And then how much would a medication be expected to lower that A1C? Because they may have different potency or efficacy. Looking at the mechanism of action, as I talked about, how does the medicine work? Some medications can have a risk of causing a low blood glucose or hypoglycemia, so that would be a consideration. Obviously, insulin has that risk, but some of the medications do also. Looking at the side effects of medications that might occur, and does that, would that be problematic in you as an individual? So, for example, some medications can cause weight gain. That may not be ideal if you are already overweight and are trying to lose weight. Uh, so there are medications that it could help with the weight loss, and I'll touch on those. Uh, then we look at other conditions that might preclude using a medication, what we call a warning um, or a precaution for use. So here often it might be if looking at your liver function and, again, your kidney function. And the final one here, which I think is very important, is the cost. Um, these medications, all these new medications that I'll be talking about, are brand name only, and are probably costing over $500 a month. Now, you may not see that in your copay, which, because if you're insured, you might have like a $20 copay. But these drugs are costing health plans in our system a lot of money. So that's an absolute uh, other consideration, too. So the first um, choice, what we consider really first line, if you're diagnosed with di- type 2 diabetes, is we uh, use metformin. And metformin is a very old drug. Um, uh, a, a, a former kind of sister of it was called fenformin, but it had some pro- problems with it. So that metformin, as I mentioned, really hit the market in 1995. And metformin has been around a long time, and we have some long-term studies showing that it helps reduce uh, the diabetes complications. So not only 
uh, vessel disease like microvascular complications in your kidney or nerves, but also uh, heart uh, cardiovascular out, uh, complications like heart disease. So it, it works on these long-term outcomes. In terms of how it works, though, is it reduces the glucose or sugar release from your liver. So if you remember, I said the liver kind of overactive in terms of putting out too much glucose into your bloodstream. This is really where metformin works. It's very effective. So for a medication for diabetes to be considered effective, it would lower your A1C about 1%. So for example, if your A1C was 8%, the medication would be expected to lower it by to 7 or 6%. So that's considered very effective. And what's really nice with metformin is there's no weight gain. In fact, some people lose weight. I have people say, oh, I hope I get that. Get that. that can cause kind of a lack of appetite effect. Um, and when you use it alone, it cannot cause a low blood sugar reaction. So very safe. Um, and it's inexpensive. So I will spend a little bit of time on the dosing for metformin um, because we have to start with a small dose and slowly increase it to make sure you don't have a lot of uh, stomach or gastrointestinal side effects. So we start, you want to take it with food, um, and we start usually around 500 milligrams twice a day and slowly increase it to a target dose of about 1,500, 2,000 milligrams. So often people are taking this with breakfast and dinner. So the side effects that are common are nausea, uh, diarrhea, and my patients will describe that this is like loose stools that kind of can't get to the bathroom, not such a forewarning. But if you take it with food and we slowly increase it, it it, it works great. Um, Very rarely can cause a metallic taste and a serious side effect called lactic acidosis, which is very rare, um, and I'll get to that in the next slide. And then in, in, uh, over time, it can ca- cause a B12 deficiency. Um, and most people who are younger don't have to replace B12, um, but uh, we take a look at that, especially um, as people are on it for a long time. And then lastly, because it does cause the stomach upset, some people find um, using an extended formulation pill better, um, better tolerated, but I will say that that pill is quite large. And so I actually ask people, do you think you can swallow a pretty large pill? So those are the kind of things I'll kind of check in on. So all medications have reasons we can't use them. Um, So with metformin, if you have severe kidney disease, and our measure for this is what's called the glomerular glomerular filtration rate, and that's how well your kidneys are filtering. And so if that's below 30 millimeters a minute, uh, we would not use metformin. And so what may happen over a person's life with having diabetes is as you get older or if they, you might develop complications from diabetes, such as kidney disease, metformin initially might be suitable for you, but over your life it may not be uh, after that. So people's medicines change. I'll sometimes have people say, well, why does my neighbor take this and I take that? Um, if you have active liver disease or unstable heart failure, we need to avoid metformin for, for most people. Um, and other conditions that would be more associated if you were in the hospital. So we actually don't even have metformin 
uh, in our hospital pharmacy because we don't give it, you don't take it when you get into the hospital. Um, and then the last, the excessive alcohol or alcoholism, the concern here again is just this uh, could increase a person's risk for lactic acidosis, that very rare side effect, which is very serious. Now the next class I'll touch on are the sulfonylureas. And so these have been around since the 50s. They're very potent, and they work at the pancreas to stimulate insulin release. Uh, these, uh, I find, have gotten kind of... Uh, no one talks about them a whole lot anymore because we have all these newer medications, but newer to me does not necessarily mean better. And uh, these are still quite often uh, used and can be very effective. The main concern with the sulfonylurea is because they increase insulin release is that they can cause low blood sugar, hypoglycemia. So we just have to make sure that the dose is appropriate, not too high for you. And uh, most people do very well. Certain sulfonylureas are preferable if you have kidney problems, um, and especially in uh, more elderly uh, that have a lower risk of low, low, uh, hypoglycemia, and that's glipizide. So we often will use that preferentially. Then similar to sulfonylureas are the glinides or meglitinides, and they work the same way. They stimulate insulin release from the pancreas. But their big difference is, is that they're very quick-acting and short-acting, so that you have to take them with every meal. So where most sulfonylureas you can take once or twice a day, these uh, meglitinides you have to take with every meal, so like three times a day. And that can be hard for people to, to, uh, to follow. But the main thing here then, or just in those conditions where sulfonylurea might be a little risky, would be if you have severe kidney disease. Here we could consider a glinide because it's very short acting. Or maybe you don't eat regularly, where if you had a sulfonylurea acting constantly during the day, you could have a risk of a low sugar reaction. Because these are so short acting, they work well in people who might not eat on a regular basis. So now I'll move on to the, some of the newer three classes of medicines. And so the first, I'll like to kind of describe what I was talking about, these gut hormones. They're called incretins. So um, our bodies are amazing machines. And when we eat, so this, this is, I'll kind of walk through here. When you eat, uh, and I just had a nice uh, matcha latte and soup and salad, so my stomach's churning here. And hormones are now getting released from my gut. And these hormones act in several ways. One, the hormone GLP-1 goes to the beta cell, that, those cells in your pancreas, and they have it uh, release insulin, have them release insulin. So it stimulates insulin release. The very interesting thing, though, is it only stimulates insulin if your blood sugar is high or above a normal range. Those will be called glucose-dependent. So what happens is, is these hormones are get high after you eat, have an effect on your pancreas to stimulate insulin, but then as your sugar goes back down to a normal target range, the effect of the hormone goes away. So really no risk of low sugar with this class of medicines when used alone. They also go to another type of cell in your pancreas called alpha cells. And alpha cells produce the hormone glucagon, 
And it's, I think of it as the opposite effect of insulin, sort of the complementary hormone. So uh, alpha, uh, the cells produce glucagon, and they, um, glucagon reduces uh, uh, the, the, sorry, the, the hormone reduces the glucagon secretion from the liver when you're eating. Because what glucagon does is it goes to the liver and it increases insulin or glucose release. So when you're eating, you don't need that extra fuel from your liver. It should suppress it. Um, and then lastly, these uh, hormones work at your stomach to slow how, how quickly your food empties from your stomach. And then the last effect, which is kind of interesting, is that the hormone actually has an effect in your brain to promote society, satiety and make you feel full. So a lot of different actions of what this hormone is doing. So what they did is they looked at, okay, well, that's interesting. I wonder if there's anything out there in other animals that have a similar type hormone. So they found, I guess there's scientists out there that do this. There's a, this is a picture actually from a pharmacist who's also a herpetologist, and maybe you all know what that is, but they... Um, you know, look at different uh, proteins in different animals. And they found the spit of this lizard um, has a compound similar to our human GLP-1. And they looked at how it works, and they developed analogs of this so that it, the, as a drug, it doesn't get degraded by our body as quickly because GLP-1 gets degraded by an enzyme in our bloodstream called DPP-4. So they developed therapeutic molecules uh, from this lizard spit. So when this first came out, people said, oh, yeah, what's this lizard spit medication? And people kind of have forgotten that now. Um, but that's where it came from. So we have, let's see, six of these medications available now. I, can't, I honestly can't keep up with it, nor can I keep up with the brand name. So they're all up there, and I don't want to shout out any particular brand name, but this is what you see on the commercials. And the main difference is, in my opinion, one of them is how often you have to take it. So you can see this is twice a day, some are daily, some are once weekly. And so in addition to what would be covered by your insurance, it would be, okay, would it be more um, easier for you to take a medication once a day or perhaps weekly you might prefer? And that's the kind of conversation we have. Um, but the other consideration is that these are preferred in, if you have that um, atherosclerotic cardiovascular disease. And so because th these are being studied to make sure, one, they're safe if you have cardiovascular disease, but with these cardiovascular outcomes trials, what's coming out is that they may actually have a benefit. And so the one that has an FDA indication, which is Victoza or Luraglutide, it actually has an indication to reduce the risk of major adverse cardiovascular events in adults with type 2 diabetes and established cardiovascular disease. So if you fit that category, this particular medication and this family of medications could be preferred for you. So that's kind of our thought process. In terms of how effective they are, uh, they reduce the A1C, again, by about 1%. Advantage is, this is quite nice, is that they can promote weight loss. 
Remember I said they go to the brain, make you feel full, and so people can lose weight. And in fact, that Victoza brand, the drug is the raglutide, that drug is also approved for weight loss. Higher dose, but it's also approved. So that's kind of a nice side effect, so to speak, um, of this medication, of this class. And some have more weight loss than others. No low sugar unless you're taking them with a sulfonylurea or insulin. But the big thing is the nausea and the vomiting. So remember I said it slows gastric emptying. So you can feel nauseous. And that's actually a sign that the medication is working with this class of medicine. But over time, it does diminish. Um, and so what we do is we slowly increase the dose. Uh, we do have to avoid them if you have severe kidney problems or, and or if you have other uh, gastrointestinal problems. Like some people with diabetes develop a problem with their stomach emptying. Um, so we would not want to give you a medication that further exacerbates that. And then the last uh, warning, a reason why we can't use them, um, is, is a rare uh, condition called um, medullary thyroid cancer or multiple endocrine neoplasia syndrome type 2. Basically, you would know if you had that or if a family member had that, um, but we wouldn't give that to you in that case. So then another class, which are similar to what I just described. So remember I said the GLP-1 receptor agonists are analogs of the hormone our body already makes. The other way you can develop a drug is, well, can you slow the breakdown of our body's natural hormone? And that's what these DPP-4 inhibitors are. So they inhibit the breakdown or slow it down of our body's natural incretins. So I've talked about the GLP-1 GIP is another one. But their main effect then is stimulating insulin release and then reducing that glucagon effect on the liver after you eat. They actually don't have much of an effect centrally, and so these don't cause weight loss. So that's kind of a a distinguishing. Um, And we have four of them out there, uh, citagliptin, saxagliptin, linagliptin, and alogliptin. Uh, And again, uh, actually, these are all taken daily, so that's not a distinguishing feature. Uh, Some have uh, vary in terms of their dosing if you have kidney problems or drug-drug interaction potential, so negative interacting with other drugs you might take. So that would help uh, uh, help us select which medication is most appropriate. Um, In terms of their A1C lowering, actually a little bit less effective. I have here 0.4 to 0.8 on average, uh, so just slightly less potent, so to speak, than those GLP-1 receptor agonists. But advantages, oh, I forgot to say, so how are GLP-1 receptor agonists are given is an injection. So that's the non-insulin injectable I was talking about. So that is could be problematic for you. The DPP-4 inhibitor is a pill. So that's an advantage of the DPP-4 inhibitors. Uh, they're weight neutral, which is a positive, um, and they don't cause very much nausea and, again, no hypoglycemia. Um, very little nausea. I put that down there, but um, and that sh- and th- but they can cause joint pains, um, and so that's a consideration. So if you have serious um, arthritis, 
that would just be wouldn't we wouldn't it wouldn't preclude us using a DPP four inhibitor, but we would just want to make sure your joint pain doesn't get worse if, if you start it. So those all sound pretty good. Uh, one uh, condition that we would not use either the DPP four inhibitor or the GLP-1 receptor agonist, is if you have had a history of pancreatitis or inflammation of your pancreas. Um, obviously a serious condition, and a little difficult to determine, is it the drug or is it uh, the class of medicine? Because people with type 2 diabetes do have an increased risk of pancreatitis, about a threefold increased risk. But it's an absolute consideration for us. So if you've had a history of pancreatitis, um, stones in your gallbladder, um, other conditions associated with significantly elevated triglycerides, such as uh, alcoholism, we would be very cautious. So that is one thing that all of, we will really look at. And then what would you look out for if you might be experiencing pancreatitis would be severe, persistent abdominal pain, kind of going to the back nausea, vomiting, something's off. This is more than just being a little nauseous from the medicine. So then the last class I'll move on to are the SGLT2 inhibitors. And these are a pretty exciting class of medicines because they don't work at all in terms of your body's ability to make insulin or your body's sensitivity to insulin. They work at your kidney and they inhibit what are called transporters that normally are responsible for reabsorbing all the glucose that would be in your urine. So when you urinate, there's no sugar in there because your kidneys are reabsorbing it all. And this is the, it's called a, a sodium glucose transporter too. And so what this class of medicines does is it blocks that inhibitor, so then you urinate out the glucose. So you're kind of flushing out the glucose in your, from your body that your body would normally reabsorb. So pretty exciting. We'll talk about some side effects as a result of how they work. Uh, in terms of their A1C lowering, again, about 1%, which is considered quite effective. Um, the main side effects, though, are now that if you have more sugar in your urine, Bacteria and yeast like to grow with sugar. And so we can see genital yeast infections in men and women. And bladder infections we can see increased uh, chance for. So we, we really want, we talk to you about that. Make sure you have good hygiene when you're going to the bathroom, that kind of thing. And then um, we can see some dehydration from these. Because we're now, as a result of having more sugar in your urine, your body then reacts to that by increasing, the, wants to dilute that concentration out. And so we can see some increased urination, but that, that settles over time. Uh, it can lower the blood pressure. And then a nice little pr- promoter here is it can promote weight loss. Because glucose is calories. And now you're not reabsorbing them, you're urinating them out. So that that's, uh, it actually could be about a three to four kilogram weight loss. These are preferred uh, if you have heart failure, kidney disease, and or uh, ASCVD again. 
So that's kind of the top of our little treatment algorithm. We would consider these for you because they've been, some of them have been shown to help reduce that, and that's what I have here. So we have four currently on the market. Uh, they're all taken daily. They're pills. And two of them currently have FDA-approved indications uh, to reduce cardiovascular events. So the first one um, is Jardiance or empagliflozin, and that's the, uh, the third one in my table. And it's approved to reduce the risk of cardiovascular death in adults with type 2 diabetes and cardiovascular disease. Um, and I'll just tell you the data on this is really compelling. Uh, it's not really clear why a drug that works in your kidney helps reduce heart disease, and there's lots of theories about this. But what's been interesting is our cardiologists now see this data, and now they're getting involved in diabetes management. So some of the diabetes specialists are like, hey, leave it to us, but it's, it's, it's exciting. Um, and the other one is Invocana or Canagliflozin, and it has a, also a, a FDA indication since last fall to uh, reduce cardiovascular events such as heart attack, stroke, or death. And then interesting, some of these um, are being considered for type 1 diabetes now. There's lots of more study out there, uh, so you might see certain ones coming out approved specifically for type 1 diabetes. I'm not going to spend a lot of time on the thiazolidine diones. This is actually the final class because um, we're just not using it a whole lot anymore. So the main one you might have heard of is pioglitazone or Actos. Uh, can work well, uh, especially if, if uh, what it, where it works is it helps in your periphery to improve insulin sensitivity. Uh, so some people, uh, we still use it, uh, but we're using it less and less, mainly because of the side effects. It can cause a lot of water retention or fluid retention, edema in your legs, for example, some weight gain, and we have more and more reasons, that we, like heart failure, osteoporosis, if you have bladder cancer, that we wouldn't use it. So just not using it a whole lot anymore. Rosiglitazone, which was the first medication in this class, um, is the reason we have all these cardiovascular studies, because there was a meta-analysis done with that drug, and it showed increased risk of heart attacks if you took this drug. And so the FDA, in I think like 2008, said, okay, we need to look at all new medications. If you're going to bring a medication to the market, you have to show that it does not increase a person's risk for heart attacks or strokes. And so that's why we have all these studies going on. And then if we look at how we combine medicines, this is kind of my capstone slide, and I just have a couple left, is if we move on to, if you start with metformin, and then we need to move on to a next medication. Again, looking at do you have heart failure, kidney disease, or cardiovascular disease? But the main thing is we're going to combine medications that have a complementary or synergistic effect. So, for example, um, I talked about the sulfonylureas and those glynides that work the same but are just short-acting you would never combine those two together. That's, they're working the same. You're not going to have a better effect. The GLP-1 receptor agonists and the DPP-4 inhibitors that have those similar uh, way they work, you would never combine those two classes together because you're not going to have a greater effect. So that's what I mean by combining medications that have different uh, actions, 
mode of action. And so what we're seeing now is we see people on two, three, even four non-insulin medications um, that hopefully are rational combinations. But I'll add that over your life of having diabetes, while while we often might need more medications, it can be a function that your, your pancreas is just not making enough insulin. And we need to give you insulin. You need to inject insulin. Um, so that can very likely be part of a person's life with type 2 diabetes. So just to finish up, a um, couple of tips. So I couldn't help not as a pharmacist here. The one pharmacist, I think, in, in the class that you'll be listening to. Because the p- people I care for might be on 10 15 plus medications. I mean, it just is amazing how many medications people can take. Um, So keeping an accurate list of your medications. If you think your doctors know all the medications you're taking, you're absolutely wrong. We don't. You may have a primary care doctor, a a heart doctor, an eye doctor, whatever, and our systems are getting better, but they're not there yet. So if you have an accurate list, bring it with you to your doctor's office and really tell them how are you taking it. Maybe you stop taking a medication because it doesn't make you feel right. Well, that's probably okay, but let your, let your provider know. Um, I have my patients, they bring all their pill bottles with them because it's amazing when I, when I can just see it versus seeing it on a list. A lot of things are uncovered that, uh, that we can help you with. And then I, I suggest trying to use one pharmacy system. Um, and what I mean by that is, you know, your mail-order pharmacy, which I know has pluses and minuses, or a Walgreens or a Safeway, because those systems actually do talk to each other. Um, and we can look at any, you know, any risk of duplicating medicines or harmful drug interactions. Um, really learning about your medicines, I think that's why you're all here, so thank you. Um, but it amazes me when I ask someone, well, you know what this is for? I don't know. My doctor told me to take it. Well, it, this is your body, and I advocate that you really knowing what each medicine is for, know how to take it, the best time to take it, being familiar with possible side effects to watch out for. So if you're, something happens, you might think, oh, that's my blood pressure medicine perhaps. How to store it and then what to do if you miss a dose. Some medications, it might be appropriate to take it, you know, two times a dose the next uh, time, or, or some might just say skip it and resume your regular schedule. And then my last little uh, plug, I guess, is taking medicines consistently. As I said, I, I, I don't know, it's so hard to take your medicines regularly, and what, if you have a system, great, but finding some type of system so whether it's a simple pill box, kind of like here, filling it up for the week, or a little bit more complex one. Some pharmacies are doing blister packs, so you just kind of push out your doses of medicines for that day. So really uh, you know, knowing that there are some systems out there to make it easier for you. Some pharmacies now deliver medicines right to your house, that kind of thing. So it's enough to do to think about how to manage your diabetes. Try not to have to think about you know, am I taking them, you know, uh, consistently? Thank you. Thank you, Dr. Jones.
You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.